Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 763 for the 1st of October, 2021. This week, the central processing unit is the single most important component in a computer. That's not to denigrate all of the other components because they are essential too, but selecting the right CPU is a good first step when you're planning to buy or build a new computer. In short circuits, internet service providers include a modem with the service, but you'll pay $10 to $15 a month to rent it. It is possible to save some money by installing a modem that you own, but there's also a small risk involved. Scammers use email, instant messages, and phone calls to steal your identity and your money, but some of the attempts are so poor that it's hard to believe anyone would fall for them. Let's listen to one. In spare parts, only on the website, Linux turned 30 in August. But I have stopped asking if this is the year of Linux. Anyone who uses the internet does use Linux every day, but don't expect it to take over the desktop anytime soon. Or ever. After weeks of research, tinkering, and a lot of muttering, I have definitely found the cause of the problem that caused my primary computer to crash repeatedly. I should have figured it out sooner. And 20 years ago, if you think computers are frustrating today, I have a story from 2001, a long one, that you may find reminiscent of problems you faced back then. The central processing unit, or CPU, is an important part of the computer. Maybe the most important part except for all of those other parts, of course. Which is the most important department in any business? Managers all think their department is the most important, but let's face it, the business needs all of those departments to work, just as the computer needs all of its components to work. If you're planning to build a new computer, or planning to buy a new computer, the CPU is the one component that's likely to receive the most attention. The other parts are important too, but most people do start with a CPU. A CPU that runs at 4 GHz will be faster than one that runs at 3 GHz. That's common sense. But if the 3 GHz CPU has 8 cores, and the 4 GHz CPU has 4 cores, the seemingly slower CPU will almost certainly be faster. After CPUs have been manufactured, they have to be tested to see how fast they are. You don't just create a batch of CPUs that all run, for example, at 4 GHz. Some will, some won't, or at least they won't reliably run at the higher speed. After testing, manufacturers put the CPUs in boxes and print the specifications on the boxes. The ones that work reliably at higher speeds sell for more sometimes a lot more. The price difference between a CPU that's certified for, say, 4.2 GHz and one that's certified for 4.0 GHz might be several hundred dollars. That doesn't mean your 4.0 GHz chip won't run at 4.2 GHz. It probably will. 
After all, it came from the same manufacturing batch, it just won't run reliably for as long at the higher speed. Running a CPU at a speed higher than it's certified for is called overclocking. That's a good way to get better performance out of a less expensive processor while being faced with the need to replace it sooner. Run the CPU as fast as you want if you're willing to take the risk, but you'll also want to invest in much more powerful cooling. Let's say you have one of those super-fast 4.2 GHz CPUs. It won't run at 4.2 GHz all the time. Computers spend a lot of time just sitting around waiting for humans to tell them to do something. Rather than running in place as fast as they can, they relax by running at lower speeds until they need to do something. Many CPUs are set up so they can run at speeds faster than they're rated for, at least briefly. Intel calls this Turbo Boost, and how much faster a CPU can run above its rated speed provides a kind of headroom. The more headroom the CPU has, the more it'll cost. The CPU will also have some built-in cache memory. More cache memory means faster operation. It also means more cache, the green kind or the plastic kind, when you buy the CPU. The purpose of cache memory is keeping enough data and instructions nearby so the CPU doesn't have to wait for information from the computer's RAM or even from the much slower disk drive. Fetching data, even from a solid-state disk drive, will be slower than dealing with what's in the CPU's cache. The CPU will have values for L1, L2, and L3 cache. The L1 cache will be extremely fast, but relatively small. The L2 cache area will be larger, but a little slower, and L3 will be even larger, but slower than L1 or L2. Low-end CPUs may have just 4 megabytes of cache, while high-end CPUs can have 60 times that amount. More cache, faster operation. And earlier I mentioned cores. Each core acts like a separate CPU. For complex operations, the CPU will divide tasks among the various cores, and many CPUs use some sleight-of-hand techniques to make each core look like two. So a four-core CPU might look like it has eight processors. Of course, for applications to take advantage of all those cores, the software developers have to plan for multitasking and multi-threading. Keep in mind that all this activity is going on in a device that's about as large as an oversized commemorative postage stamp, and not a lot thicker. Intel has its Core i3, Core i5, Core i7, and Core i9 CPUs. AMD has Ryzen 3, Ryzen 5, Ryzen 7, and Ryzen 9 CPUs. Intel also has a line of Xeon processors, which are used primarily in workstation-class computers. The Xeon line usually offers more cache, error checking, and a wider range of cores. Video processing is one example of an application that takes advantage of Xeon processors, but most users will probably be served better by more standard processors. Low-end CPUs such as the Intel Core i3 can be found for less than $100, while high-end devices such as AMD's Ryzen Threadripper Pro 3995WX are priced at more than $5,000. And that's just the CPU, not an entire computer. Manufacturers typically choose CPUs such as the Intel Core i9-10920X, 
or the AMD Ryzen 9 3950X, both of which run at 3.5 GHz for their premium-priced computers. If you're building your own computer, you'll find that these particular CPUs retail for around $700, sometimes less. And which is better, Intel or AMD? From a usability standpoint, it really doesn't matter. Both manufacturers make chips that will run Windows and all Windows applications. Note, though, that Windows 11 will not run on certain CPUs, mainly those used in older devices. These are listed on Microsoft's website. There's a page for Intel CPUs and another for AMD CPUs. If you want to be able to run Windows 11 on the computer you're building or buying, make sure your CPU is not on one of those lists. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, earlier this year, Phyllis and I had dropped cable television service from our internet service provider, and we signed up for a streaming service. We're saving about $1,000 per year, and we might have more entertainment choices than we previously had. The savings come from eliminating a charge for local stations that we can easily view over the air, and from a sports surcharge that apparently provided access to sports programs we never watched. One extra charge remains, $14 per month for a cable modem. The modem is essential, but it's not essential that we rent one for $168 per year. We could buy a modem and then return the internet service provider's modem. So should we? Should you? Microcenter lists cable modems ranging in price from about $50 to $300. Best Buy has cable modems in the same price range. Amazon has some renewed models that sell for less than $30 and otherwise has devices with prices similar to those from Microcenter and Best Buy. The ISP provides a Technicolor model CGA4234 cable modem. None of the retail stores I checked with has that model. eBay had some refurbished units for less than $100. Retail stores seem to stick with more recognizable names such as Netgear, Motorola, Linksys, and Eris. The question, though, is whether the potential problems involved in owning the modem will be worth saving $168 per year. If you're old enough, you may recall a time when the telephone company owned all the phones. Until the 1960s, they were made of black Bakelite and were all but indestructible. Deregulation eventually made it possible for people to buy their own phones, and most of those phones were not indestructible. If you had a problem with the device that the telephone company owned, they'd bring you a new one. The same is true with the cable modem that you rent from the ISP. Well, maybe not the indestructible part. They are consumer electronics, after all, and they are built like consumer electronics. Or even if there's no problem with the modem, maybe you've opted for faster service, and you need a modem that's capable of handling those faster speeds. The ISP will bring one to you. 
It may not be a new modem, because ISPs run quick tests on modems that have been returned, and if they pass the basic tests, they put them back in service. So figure that a cable modem will cost $150 to $160. Assuming it remains in service for four years, we would save more than $350. Even if it failed after just one year, it'd be a wash financially. So is the potential reward large enough to offset the risk? Well, maybe. So then the next question would be which modem to buy. Before making a purchase, it's essential that you contact your internet service provider, give them the model number of the modem that you're considering, and confirm that it will be compatible with their system. When you're looking for a modem, the key specification is the DOCSIS number. That's the Data Over Cable Service Interface Specification. If you've had your ISP provided modem for a while, it's probably DOCSIS 2 or maybe DOCSIS 3.0. What you should replace it with is one with a DOCSIS 3.1 rating. Although DOCSIS 3.0 might seem to provide all the speed you need, it's a bit more complicated than that. DOCSIS 3 has 1.2 gigabits per second download, 200 megabits per second upload. DOCSIS 3.1 increases that to 10 gigabits per second down and 1 gigabit per second up. It's far more than you'll likely need or that any ISP will provide for quite some time. But there are other reasons to prefer version 3.1 over version 3.0, the most compelling of which is that these modems have better security protections. Some cable modems have a built-in router and include Wi-Fi. That's the case with my ISP's Technicolor modem. I don't need those features because I have my own router, so I had disabled them on the modem. Consider the Motorola MB8600 modem. You'll find it priced $140 to $180. It's a DOCSIS 3.1 device without a built-in router. Looking at the back of the modem, though, you might think it's also a router because you'll see four Ethernet ports. Only one Ethernet port can be used, though. So why are there four of them? Well, they're present for the far distant future. Some ISPs will probably offer much faster service, and these will require multiple ports to be used simultaneously. So Motorola has designed the modem for the future at the risk of confusing some users. The modem, though, now does come with a yellow plastic panel that covers all but the bottom port, and the installation guide explains that the panel can be removed in the unlikely event that you need to enable port bonding. That's a good solution. The bottom line for this decision is simply risk versus reward. There is no right answer. There is no wrong answer. There's only your answer or my answer. If you're wondering what I did, I contacted my internet service provider to confirm that the Motorola MB8600 would be compatible. It will be. And the person who took my call also made sure that I knew the Motorola device would need to be connected to a router with Wi-Fi capabilities. I already knew that but it's an example of good support. The modem cost $142.95, including tax, so I'll be about $25 ahead at the end of the first year. Well, now maybe you're wondering about installation. The first attempt to install the new modem failed. Miserably. That might have been because I was still a bit sleep blurry at 5.30 on a Saturday morning, and perhaps I should also mention that I'd had a few beers on Friday evening. Even so, I'm rarely at my sharpest at 5.30 a.m. The modem booted, and all the status lights were as expected, but the router reported no internet access, even though I could see data flowing between the two devices. 
There's a fairly straightforward series of steps needed to diagnose the problem, but I didn't have the time or the desire, or at that time of the morning, the smarts to work through those steps. So I reinstalled the ISP's modem, connected the router, and started preparing a plan for attempt number two. Main point here, never assume something will be easy simply because it should be easy. The modem's instructions were good, but the problem seemed not to be with the modem. So I took a look at the router's website and found a video with a recommendation. And the first point I noted there, one that should have occurred to me already and probably would have had the first attempt not been at 5.30 in the morning, was a recommendation to connect the computer directly to the modem. The Internet Service Provider's recommendation glossed over that step, so when I connected the computer to the modem directly, I was taken immediately to Wide Open West's setup page, which had detected the modem. All I needed to do was click one button to run the Internet connection check and a second button to send a refresh signal to the modem. With those two steps out of the way, I plugged the computer's Ethernet cable back into the router and plugged the router's wide area network cable back into the modem. Everything worked exactly as it was supposed to. Total elapsed time for the second attempt, less than 15 minutes. The connection is still slower than it should be. We're paying for 500 kilobits per second downlink, getting about half that most of the time, sometimes even less. This is not a modem fault, and I didn't expect the replacement modem to make the service any faster. I'll need to keep pestering the ISP about that. To get the rental modem removed from the monthly cable statement, I needed to return it. The ISP has a service office that's about a 15-minute drive from home, so I delivered the rental modem to that office and dropped it into the return equipment bin located outside the building. Because of the COVID pandemic, the office itself is closed. Scammers use every communications medium available to steal your money or to steal your identity and then steal your money. Email, instant messages, and phone calls are the most common choices, but occasionally crooks use postal mail and even faxes. Here's a call I received in September, and you'll see a transcription on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It seems to be someone is trying to hijack your identity and try to steal your social security number and personal information. If it's not fixed right away, then your computer will become obsolete and all of your credential information may got compromised. If you are the one who is using Microsoft Windows in your computer, then please press 7 now to speak with security team now. Please ignore if we called you by mistake. Thanks. The call uses a text-to-speech application that converts poorly written text to speech. It's clear that the text was not written by someone who speaks English natively. So the question might be, would Microsoft use a poorly written text-to-speech script? The obvious answer is they would not. Another question would be, wouldn't Microsoft use a professional announcer to record a message such as this? Again, the answer is obvious. Yes, they would. If Microsoft attempted to contact users by phone with security warnings. And that leads to the third question. Does Microsoft attempt to contact users by phones with security warnings? The answer is no. Microsoft does not contact users by phone unless a support person is following up on a call placed by the user. 
Microsoft also does not contact users by email to warn about security issues. Neither do consumer-grade security application providers, computer manufacturers, Homeland Security, the FBI, CIA, or Smirsh. Smirsh doesn't even exist anymore. So the proper response here is to simply disconnect the call. But if you need further evidence that it's a scam call, you might look at the phone number the call claims to be from. The uh, number was 669-266-2243. Use any search engine you want to look up that number, and you'll find that it has been reported frequently to the Federal Trade Commission for computer scams. You really don't need to do that, though, because of the numerous red flags contained in the message itself, starting with the first five words. Spare Parts has never been reported to the FTC, and you can check out this week's edition by visiting the TechBiter Worldwide website, where you'll find these articles. Linux turned 30 in August. Did you send it a card? I have stopped asking if this is the year of Linux. Anybody who uses the Internet does use Linux every day, but don't expect it to take over the desktop anytime soon, or probably ever. After weeks of research, tinkering, and a huge amount of muttering to myself, I have definitely found the cause of the problem that caused my primary computer to crash repeatedly. I should have figured it out a long time ago. And 20 years ago, if you think computers are frustrating today, I have a story from 2001 that you may find to be reminiscent of some of the problems you faced back then. Beware, though, it's a long story. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.